So um, welcome everybody to our community of Kensington Unitarians. Uh, my name is Caroline Blair. I've been a member here for quite a few years now. And um, I'm taking the service today while our minister, Sarah, is um, enjoying, I hope, a sabbatical uh, break here. Um, this is my daughter, Jenny, who will also be speaking later. Um, she is a lawyer working for the children's charity Quorum Foundation. So some short opening words from Archbishop Desmond Tutu. If you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. Um, I'm going to invite our chalice here. Um, as Unitarians and Unitarian Universalists are doing all over the world this morning, it's the thing that links our congregation together worldwide. Thousands of lights can be lit from a single candle, and the life of the candle will not be shortened. Love never decreases by being shared. There are stars whose light only reaches the earth long after they have fallen apart. There are people whose memory gives light to us, even though they have gone from our lives. Let light shine in our dark hours and show us the road that we must follow. I invite you all to join now in a time of prayer and reflection. May the spirit of life and love bless our gathering this morning as we attend to matters of ultimate concern as we sense the divine presence amongst us in this place of sanctuary, our spiritual home. In the quiet of this hour, may each person find what they most need. May the troubled find peace. May the confused find insight. May the downhearted find comfort. May the lonely find a sense of companionship. May the strong find moments of challenge, learning and growth. As we look back over the past week, let us silently give thanks for those joys and pleasures we've known. Moments of love, friendship and connection. Experiences of wonder and delight, reassurance and relief. Bursts of playfulness, spontaneity and generosity. Feelings of achievement, creativity and flow. Those times when we felt most alive and awake. Let us also ask for the consolation, forgiveness and guidance we may need as we acknowledge our sorrows and regrets. Times of loss, pain, anger and fear. Periods of uncertainty and anxious waiting. Realisation of our own weaknesses, mistakes and failings. 
awareness of missed opportunities, those things left unsaid or undone. Those moments when we struggled and felt like a mess. Expanding our circle of concern, let us bring to mind those people, places and situations that are in need of prayer right now and hold them in the light. Remember those people we know to be suffering, maybe loved ones or friends, those closest to our heart. Maybe those we find difficult, with whom we're in need of reconciliation. Maybe those we don't know so well, or that we've only heard about on the news. Remember those places around the world and closer to home on our doorstep where there is violence, unrest or instability. And let us also remember those who are working to bring peace to those situations. God of all love, we offer up our joys and concerns, our hopes and our fears, our beauty and our brokenness. And we call on you for healing insight and renewal as we look forward now to the coming week help us to live well each day and to be our best selves using our unique gifts in the service of love justice and peace amen this is reading by a journalist called ian lawton i love unmade beds I love it when people are drunk and crying and cannot be anything but honest in that moment. I love the look in people's eyes when they realise they're in love. I love the way people look when they first wake up in the morning and they've forgotten their surroundings. I love the gasp people take when their favourite character dies. I love when people close their eyes and drift to somewhere in the clouds. I fall in love with people and their honest moments all the time. I fall in love with their breakdowns and their smeared makeup and their daydreams. Honesty is just too beautiful to put into words. More and more, it's the honest people who inspire me. Not the religious, the spiritual, the optimists or the intelligent, but the honest. Those who have been touched by the harshest parts of life and it has left them real, but not bitter. Compassionate, wise, brave, shaken but not stirred. I don't want to be told it's all good. I'm not impressed by wealth or moved by fame. I love the solidarity that comes with shared humanity. In Jeremy Rifkin's book, The Empathic Civilization, he says that we're all soft-wired for empathy because we share a common fate. We're all mortal. He says, we have the whiff of death in empathy and the celebration of life. And we show solidarity with our compassion. Empathy is the opposite of utopia. There is no empathy in heaven. I'll tell, be, tell you before you get there. There isn't any empathy in heaven because there is no mortality. There's no acknowledgement of death and the celebration of life and rooting for each other to flourish and be. It's based on our fragility, our imperfections. So when we talk about building an empathic civilization, 
We're not talking about utopia. We're talking about the ability of human beings to show solidarity, not only with each other, but our fellow creatures who have one and only life on this little planet. If you have the opportunity to make another person's life gentler, even in one moment, especially as they contemplate their own mortality, then that is the most important thing you will ever do. Imagine if we treated everyone we met as if we were a taxi driver and they were on their final journey to a hospice. We would switch off the meter of striving and busyness. We would just be present and kind. Beginning today, treat everyone you meet as if they were going to be dead by midnight. Extend to them all the care, kindness and understanding you can and do it with no thought of reward. Your life will never be the same again. Last Tuesday, we saw on television or in the papers the commemoration of 70 years since the liberation of Auschwitz. Um, I have to say that um, we've, we've had a candle um, lit for that and about a Channel 4 programme that sounds fantastically interesting. I don't know if it's still available. We must speak to you. Oh, on YouTube. That does sound brilliant. I don't usually call on members of the congregation. Um, however often we hear the details of the um, treatment in the concentration camps in the Second World War, it never stops hitting us anew as a really visceral and terrible shock to realise how brutal it was, almost uniquely in human history in its calculated brutality. It's so grotesque as a historical event that somebody, it's variously attributed and variously translated, but of a commonly quoted statement after it was, after Auschwitz there can be no more poetry. Now clearly there has been a lot of poetry after Auschwitz, and I thought of that statement when I watched the cantor giving the uh, traditional prayer for the dead, as Auschwitz on Tuesday, with the lines, Therefore the Master of Mercy will protect them forever from behind the hiding of his wings and will tie their souls with the rope of life. <coughs> Auschwitz has not meant the death of poetry, but it should surely have killed off a certain concept of God, uh, or karma, as it is called on social media these days. Karma will get them in the end, don't worry about it. It's a, a very childlike, childlike concept of God or supernatural power that we have a kind of cosmic parent who will make everything all right. And if you're good, you'll be rewarded. And if you're bad, you'll be punished. And everything will come right in the end. We know that that's not true. I think perhaps the most fundamental part of growing up is learning that bad things do happen to good people. And that's just the way it is. We have to find a way of living with that. There are a thousand personal development books in the shelves of bookshops telling you that your attitude is your destiny and your future is in your control. Your attitude is often not your destiny and your future is often out of your control. Now this might feel like a pessimistic point of view in looking at life, but I would say it's realistic. Now I like optimists in small matters. I like spending time with people who will think it's going to be a good day, that the holiday's going to be great, that the film's going to be enjoyable. It's very draining spending time with somebody who's cynically pessimistic about everything. But all 
optimism can seem very misplaced when we're talking about life's critical episodes. Oh, I just know he's going to get better. Well, perhaps he isn't going to get better. And sometimes people have a kind of shallow optimism because it makes them feel more comfortable. But it's just, it feels very inappropriate sometimes. There really is a time for clear-eyed realism and for staring life in the face. But hope is a different matter. Hope might not come in the form that we were hoping for, an illness that won't get better, for example. You know, that hope doesn't mean you can choose everything that happens in life, but we have to act as if there is always hope, even if there's not hope in the form you would choose. Hope for the future, hope for people that you love. A philosopher once coined the phrase pessimism of the mind and optimism of the will. Even if things look bleak and depressing, we have to act as if there was still hope for the world or everything really is lost. A couple of weeks ago, a journalist called Mike Marcusy died and uh, one of the things he wrote is we have no right to foreclose the future. Had that been done by the radicals of the past abolitionists, feminists, trade unionists, democrats, we wouldn't even be talking now. The human faculty for cooperation, along with the unalterable facts of human interdependency, remains a perennial source of hope. More important, I think, than optimism. History attests to our capacity for creativity and compassion as much as our capacity for destruction and hate. Now, throughout the ages, soldiers have put on their armour before they go into battle. And this is very Pilgrim's Progress. We can imagine putting on our our suit of armour before we go out to face the world. Unlike the armour of real soldiers, it won't protect you from a bullet or a knife. It won't really protect you from anything, though it might mitigate the effects. But it will help you to recover when things go wrong. The armour consists firstly of our positive qualities, kindness, generosity, compassion. It includes creativity. Sometimes when feelings overwhelm us, the only way that we feel they can be rightly expressed is via some form of art or music or poetry. It includes humour, not laughing at other people's um, things that you know happen to other people, the kind of gentle, self-deprecating humour that makes you have a really tiresome day in which everybody is incredibly annoying and then at the end think, actually, there was something quite funny about that. And it includes the ability to live in the moment. If I, if I had to say one thing that life has taught me in my getting on for 60 years, apart from the fact that rice pudding always needs much less rice than you think, it's that... You shouldn't ruin today by getting mired in yesterday or tomorrow. It really is it's perfectly all right and it's necessary to watch a documentary about the Nazi death camps and feel sick to your stomach and deeply distressed and then to think, well, it's a lovely day, I'm going to take the dog for a walk. That's just part of being human. And it's perhaps the most important part of being human that we feel and then we look with hope towards the future. And we should enjoy that walk with the dog or baking a cake or whatever with all our heart. As long as we frame hope 
in terms of the endurance of positive values and not in terms of gaining success and getting a bigger car, there will always be hope. So let us be thankful for it. So I'm going to talk about the blue dress, which is a piece of South African art. Um, as most of you probably know, my sister lives in South Africa. Um, I've been out to see her, but the first time I went to South Africa was before she'd moved out there. And in fact, my visit was funded by this church because it was as part of a youth project that I was involved with while I was studying. And I went out there to set up video links between South African lawyers and young people here. I, when I went out then, and then when I went out most recently to see my sister and volunteered for a law centre, I've become more and more fascinated by South African law. Their legal system is one where there is a lot of inequality with race, wealth, um, and then there's a lot of focus on addressing that inequality. You might be familiar with the African concept of Ubuntu, loosely translated as, as people are people through each other. So it's a humanist concept. And um, like my mother, I'll quote Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who on Ubuntu said, one of the sayings in our country is Ubuntu, the essence of being human. Ubuntu speaks particularly about the fact that you can't exist as a human being in isolation. It speaks about our interconnectedness. You can't be human all by yourself. And when you have this quality, Ubuntu, you are known for your generosity. There's a close relationship, I think, between this, this cultural value of Ubuntu, this humanist value, and the way that South Africa is grappling with the legacy of apartheid. And I don't think anything, any space expresses this more clearly than their constitutional courts, which I was lucky enough to visit when I was in South Africa. The main court building, when you walk in, so it's a bit like this, you walk in through the door here and you've got a room like this in front of you. It starts off with bare bricks, and those bricks come from the men's prison, the apartheid men's prison, where Gandhi and many other people were held. And as you go around, you get painted walls, and then you get a finely finished and decorated wall on this side. And it shows the journey that the court has to take the country on and the importance of never forgetting where that journey starts. And when I was there, I was told that an, an American tourist had come to the court and he said, oh no, they've run out of money to finish decorating it and had donated a chunk of money to the court and they were too polite to tell him that his money wasn't needed. Um, but there's, there's so much symbolism of every aspect of the court building. When you first walk in through the entrance, it's structured to look like light coming down through the leaves of a tree, a big sacred tree. Um, harking back to the tradition of elders dispensing wisdom from under the shade of the tree for the village. Uh, and the, everything down to the tiniest detail, so the font that the Supreme Court use on their letterhead, Constitutional Court use, rather, use on their letterhead, comes from the writing above the entrance. And that writing is that the 11 original judges each wrote a welcome message in one of the 11 national languages of South Africa. And one of the judges, Judge Yakub, is a blind judge, and he learnt to write just to write his message above that door. So they've used his handwriting as their letterhead to emphasise their sort of accessibility and basically how cool their judges are. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, it, the visit there was one of the highlights of my life for me. I, I, I'm a proper geek, so the idea of going out there to meet one of their constitutional court judges, which is what I was doing, 
I was waking up every kind of hour throughout the night being like, can I go yet? Can I get ready yet? Um, and then when we went, the judge I met is called Justice Edwin Cameron, and he was the first public figure to come out as HIV positive and gay. Uh, he was made a judge by Nelson Mandela, and he says that for him that showed that the real equality of South Africa, that his sexuality, that's not what was important to Nelson Mandela, it was how good a judge he'd be. Um, he's a very charismatic man, so I was, I was very excited to get to sit down and drink tea with him and talk to him about youth rights. Um, and I was also very proud that I'd got there, because it's a different country, I'd put the trip together. So thank you to the church for making that possible. In any event, the story I want to share with you is about one of the pieces of art in the super- in the Constitutional Court. You'll see some bits of carrier bags there. The reason for those will become obvious. So the blue dress is a piece of art in the Constitutional Court's art gallery. And when the court was being built, they were given a sum of money, I think it was something like £50,000 or something, for their art budget. And the judges, being refined people, looked at this and spent it all on one painting. So they've got one, one, one expensive painting and then they weren't sure what to do next. And gradually, when their, their plight became known, South African artists started to donate pieces of work. And the sort of work that's donated is all what I would describe as art with a conscience. It's all kind of very thoughtful sculptures about the, the place of people and race and power in South Africa now. Um, and the blue dress is one of these pieces of art and it's by an artist called Judith Mason. And she came up with the idea for the piece of art when she was listening to accounts of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission on the radio. As a slight diversion, I'll explain what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is for people who may quite reasonably never have come across the concept. The idea was at the end of apartheid there was a big division and there had been a great deal of brutal atrocities committed under the apartheid regime. There had also been some atrocities committed on the other side. There were murders on both sides. And rather than have decades of unpleasant, gruelling court cases, the idea was they would have an amnesty. But they couldn't have an amnesty that gave no recognition to all the horrors that had taken place. There was so much secrecy, so many people had just gone missing and never been heard of again. So the idea of their amnesty was if you came before the TRC, if you told them your story, no more silence the details, answered all their questions about what had happened and what you'd done, then you would have amnesty for what you'd done. Otherwise, no amnesty. So there have been some prosecutions. There were problems with the TRC in practice, which I don't need to go into now, but I think the focus on forgiveness, reconciliation, transformation is a very powerful response to something like apartheid. One of the um, famous anti-apartheid fighters who was killed, shot 12 times in the head by police, Christopher Piet, When his mother was asked about the TRC, she said, This thing called reconciliation, if I am understanding it correctly, if it means the perpetrator, the man who was killed, Christopher, if it means he becomes human again, this man, so that I, so that all of us get our humanity back, then I agree, then I support it all. And she had real problems with the TRC because the the killer of her son spoke in Afrikaans and it wasn't translated and she didn't speak Afrikaans. So... It was a very problematic process, but the idea of it, I think, is very powerful. So back to the blue dress. Judith Mason, an artist listening to the radio, hearing these proceedings, and she hears an account given by the killer of a woman called Fila Nwandwe, whose name I've no doubt pronounced terribly badly, because it's probably got clicks in it and I'm no good at them. 
but Nwandwe for now. And Fila was a black anti-apartheid activist. And one day she was arrested and she was taken away, tortured, stripped naked, left naked in her cell. Eventually she was taken out, killed, and her body was left in a shallow grave. She never gave up the names of her comrades and they never got any information out of her. Her killer told the TRC about his role in her death and he said that when she'd been stripped naked and left in her cell, she made herself a pair of knickers out of a carrier bag. He told them where her body was and when they dug her up, she was still wearing a blue plastic bag as underwear. That's how they identified her body and took her away to be buried properly. So Judith heard Fida's story on the radio and she went and she collected far more plastic bags than that and made her blue dress out of blue carrier bags. On the dress she wrote a message for Fila. She wrote, Sister, a plastic bag may not be the whole armour of God, but you were wrestling with flesh and blood and against powers, against the rulers of darkness, against spiritual wickedness in sordid places. Your weapons were your silence and a piece of rubbish. Finding that bag and wearing it until you were disinterred is such a frugal, commonsensical, housewifely thing to do, an ordinary act. At some level, you shamed your captors and they did not compound their abuse by stripping you a second time, yet they killed you. We only know your story because a sniggering man remembered how brave you were. Memorials to your courage are everywhere. They blow about in the streets and drift on the tide and cling to thorn bushes. This dress is made from some of them. Hambakale, Umkonto. And I find this piece of art incredibly inspiring. I think if we are human, we this concept of Ubuntu that when there is darkness, when there are people who kill Fila, we have that darkness in us as well, but we also have her bravery. When others are humiliated, we are all diminished, and an act of kindness from any of us, an act of love, raises us all up. The Constitutional Courts commissioned two paintings of the blue dress to go with it. So they've got the dress hanging on a hanger and then they've got two paintings next to it. And they show, so one of them shows the dress behind barbed wire, one of them shows it, I can't remember what the other one, something like that again. So it's the, the, and it shows the dress flying or dancing in the wind in face of that oppression. And these commissions were perhaps partly in kindness to Judith Mason, the artist who donated the original work, which had become so famous but she's a very poor artist and had got no money from donating the original one, so they've commissioned these two others. And Albie Sachs, the judge seen as most responsible for South Africa's constitution, uses the blue dress on the front page of his autobiography. So it's become a symbol for post-apartheid South Africa. And I'd invite you to remember Fina Nwandwe and all those others who face horror with dignity, and I'd invite you to remember them with love. May the blessing of light be on you, light without and light within. May the blessed sunlight shine on you like a great peat fire, so that stranger and friend may come and warm himself at it. May light shine out of the two eyes of you, like a candle set in the window of a house, bidding the wanderer come in out of the storm. May the blessing of rain be on you. May it beat upon your spirit and wash it fair and clean and leave there a shining pool where the blue of heaven shines and sometimes a star 
and may the blessing of earth be on you, soft under your feet as you pass along the roads, soft under you as you lie out on it, tired at the end of day, and may it rest easy over you when at last you lie out under it, may it rest so lightly over you that your soul may may be out from under it quickly, up and on its way. Amen.